listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... A weekend, uh, we've had three deaths reported by the Ministry of Health, and this is all in Majuro. COVID-19 cases continue to surge in the Marshall Islands, stretching health services. Oh, the need for the resources is always due yesterday. The lack of having poor infrastructure. Experts say $200 million cash injection is urgently needed for Pacifica Health. In the, in the past, sorcerers were seen as defenders of their communities. And we talanoa to a Kiwi filmmaker helping to raise awareness about sanguma, or sorcery-related violence, in Papua New Guinea. But before we get into that, some developing news. Vanuatu's Prime Minister, Bob Lofman, is due to face a motion of no confidence on Tuesday in Parliament in Port Vila. Lofman's power hangs in the balance with the opposition group led by Ralph Regan Vanu claiming to have the support of 29 MPs in Vanuatu's 51-seat Parliament. However, in a more recent development, Ralph Regan Vanu says Mr. Lofman and his ministers have asked Vanuatu's head of state to dissolve parliament to avoid the motion being moved on the floor. We'll have the latest on this developing story as it happens on our website, rnzi.com. Government authorities in the Marshall Islands are struggling to stay on top of a surging outbreak with one more death recorded over the weekend and cases already in the thousands and continuing to climb. The outbreak was officially reported on Monday last week, but health officials believe it has been underway well before it was picked up. Help is on the way from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and other overseas organizations. Meanwhile, local authorities are struggling to maintain services, as already 200 of their own staff have contracted the virus. Our correspondent in the Marshall Islands, Gif Johnson, joins me now. Kia ora and welcome back on Pacific Waves, Gif. How are things going over there? Uh, it was pretty chaotic the first week, as one would expect, just the way it's been in every country of the world is the health people, you know, come to deal with it. And the, the, the really great thing, though, is that because we've had two and a half years to watch what's gone on around the world to get people vaccinated, to get Paxlovid and all these therapeutic medications on on island and just people are aware and especially this Omicron BA5 thing is like we know how it spreads, like in the Micronesia. I mean, one case, next minute, a hundred, next minute, a thousand, and it's just exponential. So I think people like understood, like this is how it's going to go. And what I can say is, uh, as of this weekend, this past weekend, these alternate care sites that have been set up in the community, they're running much more smoothly now uh, after sort of an initial chaos of you know just so many people deluging the the centers for 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 tests and treatment they're opening up more community sites to expand the health services out into the community and they're going out to outer islands now to try to deal with the spread that's happened in the remote islands which frankly are the biggest worry because they don't have hospitals they just have a they have very rudimentary health care uh, available on the remote island. So they're, you know, they've already pretty well, they've already confirmed spread on one outer island and, and expect based on people tra- having traveled there before we knew we had COVID, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, that they're spread on probably half, maybe half a dozen other islands. So they're dealing with getting medical teams out and train the health assistants on those islands, how to do the testing and provide the medication. But we've got so much, so many resources from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the WHO, and you know, the partners are great. So it's, uh, I think, you know, a little bit chaotic, but as prepared as one can be to tackle COVID. Yeah, and I, I guess the the experience that we've had is like the more spread and and all of that occurs and becomes part of life the the thing that they're worried about and watching is the number of people admitted to hospital the number of deaths like how that serious end of of the disease is is what they're trying to keep down and maintain how is that aspect of it so far yeah so uh, uh a weekend uh, we've had three deaths now reported uh, all male uh three deaths reported by the ministry of health and this is all in Maduro. So, you know, the, the early on, like months ago, the CDC did a forecast for the Marshall Islands to give people an idea of how the wave would hit. And it would be for a couple of months, you know, you write it up and then it tapers off. And they predicted nearly 30 people would die in an initial wave of COVID. So we hope that's not the case, uh, but we've seen three so far. But the hospitalizations in Madro have been fairly modest so far, but also we're in a very early stage of the outbreak. And, you know, everybody knows now that the hospitalizations and deaths tend to lag behind uh, the the positive cases. And I agree with you. I mean, the absolute numbers don't really mean, I mean, just because you've got a lot of people positive, I mean, 90% or 95% of them don't have any symptoms and what have you, um, or maybe more have symptoms, but very modest, you know, flu-like, flu-like symptoms. But the real, the real uh, tell is in the hospitalization. So uh, they're at a fairly low number. I mean, like, like uh, maybe a dozen hospitalizations or something up to now. Um, Obviously, it will go up. uh, But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just see how it does. But they've, they've got these community care centers set up and they're doing you know, a pretty ma- amazing job of treating people out in the community, trying to keep the people away from the hospital, except for the really seriously ill people who need to get in uh, and then uh, keeping the hospital for those folks. Yeah, no, thanks for those pictures as well. And uh, it seems, seems to show that the community are, are sort of really wanting to do their part and, 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 and get involved in what needs to be done. How has the government messaging been? And I understand you have some overseas help on the way as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, there've been, there's been a lot of announcements, a lot of information out, you know, in the lead up to this, uh, the, the, there's material in the newspaper, there's things on social media, radio interviews and that sort of thing. And they also use text messaging through the, everybody is on one telecom system. So they do mass texts to announce, you know, facilities are open for testing or whatever. So I think generally like there's a certain level of awareness. And I mean, we are two years in, two and a half years into it. And uh, so I, I would assume that, you know, there's a certain level of people know a little bit about, about it, uh, but essential for here because so many Ministry of Health employees got COVID. 
I mean, they, they, the number now is over 200 Ministry of Health employees who've had COVID in the first week, knocking them out of play for a bit. And in fact, on uh, late on Thursday last week, the Secretary of Health uh, issued a memo calling back workers, even if they're positive, saying that we just have, you know, if you don't have symptoms or you have very mild symptoms, we need you back. We'll give you two days off instead of the five. And then they would plug them into, say, non-patient uh, uh, jobs. But, you know, they, they just need people on deck. And uh, but I mean, 200 people out is like a third of their workforce. So <laughs> but it's again, it's it's the way things go. So the U.S. CDC, which has responded really incredibly to the U.S. affiliated islands uh, up here, when Palau had its outbreak early this year, a CDC team went in for a few weeks to support uh, not just technical advice, but, you know, literally boots on the ground, doctors, nurses, to just a surge support team to help out. Same in Micronesia. And now they're going to do the same here. Uh, there's supposed to be a couple of people arriving into Ebai Island tonight, coming in, I believe, from Puanpei, and where they've been there for that outbreak. Uh, and now, uh, then tomorrow, there'll be a bigger team coming into Majuro uh, on the flight on Tuesday. Uh, so the, I think the Ministry of Health is really looking forward to having uh, having their forces bolstered by the CDC teams. And and maybe just ending on a personal note, uh, just the impact on the day-to-day -day life, I guess, in, in Marshall Islands, your own operation affected as well. <laughs> Everybody's operation is affected. I mean, I went next door just now to buy some drinks. And the owner is at the is doing the cash register. I mean, all the cashiers are out with COVID, and it's pretty. I mean, here we had four our print shop. Four of six people were out last week. Up at our at the newspaper office, like uh, half of our staff are out. Either they're out because they have it, or their kids have it. And yeah, it's just. Look, all over town. I mean, the post office had to close one day because so many people came down with COVID. And it's just, yeah, it's rolling. And I think, you know, people are doing their best, but it's just the way it goes. And this, the, the Omicron BA5, boy, I mean, it's on steroids. <laughs> it's just, I mean, not necessarily that people are going to get super sick, but just that it just spreads and it's just an amazing thing to kind of see how that uh, that's working. Desperate calls for a cash injection of around $200 million for Pacific Health Services in New Zealand are growing. The New Zealand government has not yet fulfilled the suggestion made by providers last year Pacific communities have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. The latest New Zealand Ministry of Health report on Pacific COVID-19 data ending August 7 states that Pacific peoples have the highest death rate per 1,000 for all age groups. The former chief executive, Tevita Funaki, told our reporter Lydia Lewis the funding was needed yesterday. There's a group of Pacific providers looking at um, the, the challenge of what's evidence from the COVID stuff. Uh, while we actually increased the number of frontline staff, our core infrastructure didn't grow with it, uh, which are the key enablers in there. Uh, there was some resilience uh, planning um, to put into it collectively in there. 
And I think uh, with memories, I think it was around just under 200 million that was actually asking for in that business case. Did uh, they listen? Uh, no, we haven't received uh, a lot of that funding. Uh, and what we are hoping with is with this new reform that is coming through um, that you know, will help us in terms of um, uh, dealing with some of the bureaucracies. I think the health reform that's coming through is pretty clear uh, that they want to look at developing an investment into Pacific providers. So I think it's a matter of time, but it's about us getting ready um, to actually uh, advocate but also plan to do those developments. Tell me about this 200 million call and when it is needed by and what planning is underway. Oh, the need for the resources is always due yesterday. As I touched on that, um, what's actually really, uh, it was there, but it's actually brought it to the forefront. The lack of uh, having core infrastructure to be able to support the staff. So there's one thing um, that is actually challenging. The second thing is around workforce. Um, the investment into uh, Pacific workforce uh, to come through with its training. Uh, but also available to um, for organisations like us to be able to to access uh, work, you know, more specific uh, workers, but also the training and development for those specific uh, uh, staff as well. When did you um, make the call? Did you write a letter? Did you have a meeting? What what happened? When was that? That was actually submitted uh, last year. Yeah. Um, in there, uh, and the and. The program. What was it submitted through? What, what was? Can you just explain about the technical side of it, please? So all of us as specific providers, we were asked to put together a resilience plan for the for each providers, and collectively, that's where the sum that came to under two hundred million in there uh, that was put through. And there was a number of key investment areas, uh, core infrastructure, service delivery, workforce, and so forth. And uh, there, that was submitted. Uh, that has hasn't progressed as fast. Um, and um, things have come across that, continue to be with COVID stuff. But also, uh, there's a major health reform. Do we need the money now? Yes. Are we desperate for it? Yes. Um, and we want to fast track in terms of the system now to be able to enable um, releasing and providing those resources to support us. Are you, do you have confidence in Health NZ? Um, I think. Uh, What's you know, the first thought that comes to mind? I, do you have confidence in Health NZ that they will deliver on these outcomes now when you need them? It is a significant reform, uh, but the appointment of Margie Arpa into the role uh, as a CEO uh, gives us confidence because at least as a CEO you understand, uh, so you stay close with us to understand the struggles of specific providers and to actually put that as part of the priorities uh, in the new organisations that she's actually leading. So she also sees Pacific and live here in South Auckland. Um, she understands the struggles and the complexities of needs of Pacific. So that gives us some confidence. Um, we also have seen the most senior Pacific role that's ever been appointed uh, as, an, as a national director. We had Meg Potassi here. That also gives us some confidence that at least as a CEO, you get plucked, Pacific is plucked in straight with you. And... Um, you know, we've got to work with him uh, and uh, with, with Meg and, and also uh, Margie around uh, mobilising. The, you know, they've got to stand up as team and all that. Um, and, you know, but those are people, those are leadership that at least 
are not foreign in terms of the struggle that we have. So they are, um, you know, good level of confidence in there. And you too, as well, a new role as well. Tell me about that. Uh, yes, I've just been appointed into the co board uh, for Procare. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and it's, uh, you know, Procare has been our PHO and obviously I, I chair PHO board for a little while and thought I was, uh, you know, but being put into the co board, it's a privilege to be there, but it's also a responsibility. And uh, my role in there is actually to pacificize uh, Procare uh, and ensure that... Uh, where they're building their resources and commitment is also for Pacific. Have you had any first or initial meetings and, and how have you started that conversation? When do you plan to start that conversation and make those changes? I'll actually get my first meeting uh, next uh, on next week, I think on Tuesday or Wednesday. At the same time, we're also having the PHO board in there. It's going to be interesting to see Procure Group. It's uh, a bit more wider than just primary care and population health. Uh, there's... Uh, a number of, you know, obviously the network, um, but also there's the telehealth and things like that in there. So um, I look forward to it. And, um, you know, it's also just like we'll be courageous, we'll ask the questions, we'll ask the hard question. Um, because the, um, you know, the needs and the struggle is real uh, in there. So um, I think, I think be, they seem to be quite confident and there's some good people in the board. So. A New Zealand filmmaker is hoping his short film Wildfire and its accompanying feature project will help efforts to stop Sanguma or sorcery-related killings and violence in Papua New Guinea. Horrific stories of Sanguma began surfacing around 20 to 25 years ago in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, but incidents have become more widespread in recent years. The victims of Sanguma are often the most vulnerable in society, women, particularly widows, but also elderly men and people living with disabilities, and in more recent years, even children. I'm joined now by filmmaker Paul Wolfram, who also teaches film at the Victoria University of Wellington, Teherenga Kwaka. Kia ora and welcome on Pacific Waves, Paul. Now, we will talk about wildfire in a bit, but let's start with the practice of sorcery in Papua New Guinea. It's not always been associated with violence, has it? In the, in the past, sorcerers were seen as defenders of their communities um, and they were people that, um, you know, perhaps defended people from other malicious magical attacks. It's only since the 1980s, 90s or even more recently that people have come across this new word, sanguma. So with the arrival of this word, sanguma, which has come to mean this malicious sorcery where um, people are believed to be killed by other sorcerers, um, it's only with the arrival of that that this violence has started to arise. The traditional practices in Melanesia didn't very rarely involve violence around magic. Now, when a person is seen to be a sanguma or is accused of killing somebody else through magical practices, people violently attack those those accused. Um, so the situation has changed quite rapidly. It's no longer the traditional practices that they used to believe in. Now it's um, it's become this new thing that's arrived with, I guess, I guess the influence of the outside world. As these places have become more um, engaged with the Western world and Western economic systems, as well as government systems, things have changed rapidly and people are now um, looking for people to blame. So when somebody in their community dies suddenly, instead of you know going to a doctor for an autopsy or 
um, understanding that they might have died of old age or illness, diabetes, HIV. People look for somebody, an individual to blame. And that's when these Sanguma accusations take place. Now, turning to the film, um, tell us a bit about the trailer that's been been showing and and sort of what in all of this complexity, I don't envy you finding a storyline to follow, but if you can tell us what what was the sort of gist of this film, and it, it is also building up to something bigger as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I started this, um, you know, um, project back in 2017, as I mentioned, I was doing some teaching in the Highlands, and I came across this issue of sorcery accusation-related violence and how ubiquitous it is in the communities here and just how shocking it is, how many stories of killings and and um, grievous bodily harm, all sorts of terrible things are going on in these communities that are generally very welcoming, open places. So it's kind of shocked at the degree of what was going on in these communities. And as I began to research more and understand the issue more, I decided to return in 2018 to do some preliminary research and shoot some footage and understand what's going on on both sides. I I worked with the perpetrators of the violence as well as the um, the survivors of, of sorcery violence and other people involved in the issue. So I was really trying to build up a picture of what's going on and understand it. I come from an, that ethnographic background, so I really want to understand how the people on the ground understand the situation rather than bring an outside lens to it. So having done that in 2018 and begun to got my head around things, um, and then I went back again in 2019, and in that period I met this incredible woman, a grassroots human rights defender, and was really inspired by her. I think the day that I met her, I um, was interviewing government officials and police and all sorts of sort of people and and positions of power. I ended each interview by asking them, you know, what can be done to stop sorcery violence? And they all kind of threw their hands in the air and said, well, the problem's too big. We don't have enough resources. Um, I don't know what can be done. This is embedded within us. How can we get rid of it? None of them really had an answer. And the same that same day, I met Evelyn Kunda, this independent woman, uh, with no resources, l- living in the slums or the banana blocks on the outside outside of Karoka town. And when I interviewed her and asked her the same question, what can we do? She said, we do everything we can with whatever we have. You know, she had this very practical, hands-on approach to trying to find a solution, trying to rescue women and men and children accused of witchcraft. And uh, I thought that's the way to tell the story. So that began the process of um, what has become a a wider project, really. Um, The project involves um, the short film Wildfire, which more or less describes the situation for people in Australia and New Zealand and further afield, really describing what's happening amongst our largest Pacific neighbour, 9 million people living in Papua New Guinea, and we know so little of what's going on up there. And so it describes what's going on from the point of view of the the police that have to deal with the problem, the doctors and nurses that see the results of the uh, maimings and and attacks and the and the burnings. Um, it's it's pretty horrific in that sense, and it also presents the issue from the perspective of those perpetrators. People were entirely open and free with describing for me what they've done and you know, homicides that they've been involved with, people that they've they've helped to kill in their own communities. 
and they have no qualms or no shyness about telling me these things direct to camera because they believe that they are protectors of their own communities. They believe they're doing a service for their communities. So we're running an impact campaign alongside the feature film that we're going back to finish next year. And the impact campaign is about trying to get Evelyn Kunda, that local indigenous human rights defender, into a safer position. At the moment, she's rescuing people by looking after the survivors of sorcery violence, by housing them in a tiny um, hand-built um, house on the edge of Karoka. This is the place that she built with the offcuts of of the material world that she lives in, bits of copper and corrugated iron that she has been able to find. She's made this entire safe house, but it's only as safe as um, as one woman can make it. And she really needs uh, to have a permanent house and, um, and a, a way of protecting the people that she's looking after. So we're making a feature film that is um, working with Evelyn to, to show the incredible work that she's doing to show the indigenous solutions to these to these local problems and to try and educate people both in Papua New Guinea and here or in the Western world about what's going on and what they can do to support changing and bringing to an end the sorcery violence. Thank you so much. And where can people see that right now and, and look out for and follow? Well, um, Wildfire is free to view for anybody. If you go to Vimeo and look up Wildfire, I think, RNZ will put a link to it or embed it. Um, it's it's um, it's a 20-minute film, and like I said, it covers all of those people, those working to solve the problem, the perpetrators involved in the problem, and um, and the police and and doctors and nurses dealing with the with the results of those problems. So it's kind of a a very direct look at this at this growing issue in Papua New Guinea. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Kaki te anu. <laughs>